This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. You may be seated. Uh, our gospel story today ends with the Father's voice from the heavens speaking down to His Son and saying, You are my Son, my beloved. With you I am well pleased. And one of our, our favorite Simon quotes in the household lore of the Kroll family is from when Simon was three. I was putting him to bed and feeling full of affection and also feeling the fleetingness of, of the years, and I wanted to make sure that I was giving him all the affirmation that as a young child he needed, and I just looked down to him and I said, Simon, I love you so much. I'm so glad you're my son, and I'm so glad that you are a part of this family. It wouldn't be the same without you. And he looked up at me and he said, Papa, sometimes when I drink too much milk or water, it comes out my nose. The Bible doesn't tell us what Jesus said in response to the Father's voice, but we can be reasonably assured it wasn't that. While I'm thinking of it, resurrection, I love you. And it's a joy for me to serve you as a priest. I'm so glad that you are the church that I get to serve. And I believe that God has given me a prophetic word today to uh, encourage us, to strengthen us, to open us up to what He wants to do in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to talk about the Lord's baptism, how the Lord in His baptism was proclaimed to be the Lord's anointed and all that that means for Jesus. But then we're going to see what does that mean for us who are also called the Lord's anointed ones. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would pour out your Spirit. Abba, Father, we are yours. Fill us with your Spirit that we might do the work of Jesus, your Son. And I pray that every brother and sister of mine here in this congregation would walk away today encouraged, built up, transformed by the presence of your Spirit. Amen. So turn to Matthew chapter 3. It's on page 808 in your pew Bibles. We'll look at the story of Jesus being baptized in the river. So in verse 13, we see that Jesus is coming from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized. So John has been baptizing crowds, calling them to repentance and confess their sins. This is the very first thing that Jesus does as a public act, is to be baptized. So he comes to the Jordan River to be baptized, and John is confused. And if you've ever been confused by this story, why is Jesus going to be baptized? That's what we need to do. Well, you're not alone. John also was confused. Look at verse 14. John would have prevented Jesus, saying, no, no. I need to be baptized by you, and, and do you come to me? John understood that his ministry was calling people out of their sin, and that when they went into the water, the washing of the river rushing by represented the cleansing of their sins. He's looking at Jesus saying, you have no sins to cleanse. There's no turning away from sin and to God that you, you need. What are you doing here to be baptized? And Jesus says, no, we must do this. So Why? Well, first, it is for Jesus to identify with us, to identify with sinful humanity. It's true that Jesus himself has no sins that need washing away, but his, in his baptism, he identifies with our sins. St. Paul says that in our baptism, we go down into the water, we identify with him in his death. Here, Jesus, by going into the water, identifies with us in our sins. And that work, which does culminate on the cross and finds its fullest expression there, nonetheless was part of his earthly life all along. 
When he was conceived, when he took on our nature, it was fallen human nature that he assumed. That is, human nature that was weakened by the fall. He had no special advantage being the Son of God. He took on our humanity. It's like a batter stepping into the batter's box with two strikes against him before the first pitch is even thrown. If Jesus had sinned once, the game was up. It was all over. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus indeed was tempted in every way as we are, yet he never gave in to temptation. He always said yes to the Lord and no to sin. Where we fell, he succeeded. And indeed, the very next story after Jesus' baptism is Jesus being tempted by the devil in, in the fullest possible temptation. And spoiler alert, Jesus succeeds. He defeats the devil. So this coming into the water at his baptism is a sign, Jesus saying to us, I've come to fully identify with fallen humanity in every way up to the point of I will not actually commit sin, but I will identify with fallen sinful humanity, not from far away, but from near, close, within, and even in the midst of you. With all the disadvantage of our weakened humanity, from that place I will raise up humanity. So Jesus' willingness to go under the water at the Jordan River shows us his willingness to undergo death and suffering for our sakes and in our place at the cross. But what else does the baptism of Jesus signify? Well, we look at verse 15. Jesus' response to John, let it be so now, for thus in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what does he mean to fulfill all righteousness? Possibly, he's referring to Exodus 29, where in the ordination of Aaron and his sons to the priesthood, Moses first washed them and said that all future priests, before they become anointed as priests, they do a full body washing of water. They come up out of the water, then they're anointed with oil, and that's part of their consecration to the priesthood. It could be that Jesus has that in mind when he says to fulfill all righteousness. It could also be that when he says to John, let us do this, you and me, John, He's saying something, that there's a passing of the baton because John, whom Jesus would later say was the greatest of all who had been born to woman up to that point, and therefore John the Baptist represents all of the Old Testament, there is a passing of the mantle from John to Jesus. But whatever is happening, certainly this is happening. In Jesus' baptism, we see the official inauguration of Jesus, the Messiah. The word Messiah, which we translate Christ, but is Messiah in the Hebrew, Mashiach, means anointed one. Now, why is anointing so important? We're used to crowns and coronations to make somebody a king, but for the Jews, it was anointing with oil that set them apart and said, this is the successor. And there were three offices in the Old Testament that required this anointing with oil, the king, priest, and prophets. So recall Samuel anointing David, you will be the next king of Israel. Or Elijah the prophet anointing Elisha, saying, you will be the prophet after me. Or Moses who anointed Aaron to set him apart in the priesthood. And that was all anointing done with oil. When we look ahead to the book of Acts, there's a story where Peter is preaching to Cornelius and a bunch of Gentiles. 
And he's telling them the gospel. He's explaining to them, though they have some familiarity. So let me read to you. This is from Acts 10. Peter says, You yourselves know what happened all throughout Judea and Galilee in this region. How after John's baptism, which he proclaimed, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And then Peter goes on to explain about the cross, Jesus' death, his resurrection to new life, and that by this, he washes away and forgives our sins. But it's interesting that as Peter gives the summary of Jesus' ministry and mission, he begins with the baptism of Jesus by John. And what's the language he uses? Anointing. Jesus was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit. So Peter understands this to be an anointing. That's helpful. Because when we go back to the story of Jesus being baptized, there's something missing, something really important, something that's essential to make anointing anointing. There's no oil. Without oil, you can't have anointing. You might call it an essential oil. So without this oil, there's no anointing. But again, what does Peter say? He says that Jesus of Nazareth was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit. So instead of oil, Jesus is anointed by something far greater, the Holy Spirit. And that's sort of like even now when we anoint one another with oil, that oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, a reminder that those who are in Christ are also anointed ones, little messiahs. But the anointing with the Holy Spirit rather than oil is also significant because it highlights something else. You know, in one way, John and all the Old Testament is passing the baton on to Jesus like Elijah to Elisha, but there is this crucial difference. John washes Jesus with water, but who anoints? Who anoints? Not John. Again, what did Peter tell us? God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. And by that he means and implies God the Father anointed Jesus, his son, with the Holy Spirit. So unlike other anointings, there's no oil but something greater, the Holy Spirit. Unlike other anointings, it's not merely a human who's performing the work of anointing. This is God the Father himself anointing his son, Jesus. The significance of that is this. While in fulfillment and continuity of all that had come before, yet Jesus is not simply picking up where John the Baptist left off. He is inaugurating something new, a new creation, a new kingdom, the kingdom that is from above. In the baptism of our Lord, we see the King of heaven descending into the waters, coming down to establish a realm on the earth. That was the mission of Jesus. That's what he came to the earth to do. And he succeeded. He did that. And then he did something very curious. He commissioned his followers to carry on the work of bringing his kingdom to all the rest of the world, and then he gave them the anointing of his Holy Spirit. They also received 
the same anointing and the same work. And indeed, when Peter's writing to the church and in 1 Peter, he calls the church a royal priesthood. Royal, that's kingly. Priesthood has to do with the priesthood. In Revelation, twice, the church is called a kingdom of priests who reign. Reigning has language of kingship with it. And of course, kingdom of priests has to do with the priesthood. So again, we see this anointing of kingship, the anointing of the priesthood. But what about prophet? That third role, that, that third office, which was typically um, you were anointed into that office. Well, Paul in Ephesians says, speak the truth to one another in love. Well, speaking truth is what a prophet does. He says, sing to one another with psalms and songs and spiritual songs. Proclaim to one another in worship the great and wonderful deeds of God. And as you do that, you're prophesying to one another. That's what you're doing. He is more clear in 1 Thessalonians when he says, don't quench the Spirit, but prophesy. Test everything, but don't quench the Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 14, make love your aim and desire the greater gifts, he says, especially that you may prophesy. Because the one who prophesies builds up the church with edification, comfort, and consolation. So the Bible says you're anointed with the same anointing that Jesus received. The anointings of kingship, priesthood, and prophecy. So the question for you this morning is, are you walking in the anointing God has placed upon you? Are you walking in the anointing of kingship? So in the ancient world, kings went out to do battle for their people. They fought against the enemies of the people. They fought to expand their kingdom. And remember again, how did Peter describe the mission of Jesus? He went about doing good and setting free all those who were oppressed by the devil. He fought against our enemy. That's what Jesus did. Are you battling against evil for the sake of those around you? Are you helping someone get disentangled from sinful patterns? Are you discipling someone younger than you, teaching and showing them how to walk in virtue, holiness, and in maturity? Are you exercising gifts of hospitality and service and mercy and compassion in order to bring the love of Jesus to the world around you and break the power of loneliness and suffering? Do you understand that physical illness and mental illness and demonic affliction have no place in the kingdom of heaven? And since it is true that the kingdom of heaven is breaking in on earth now, we should expect to see Jesus healing physical and mental illness and casting out demons in our midst. But guess how he wants to do that? That's right. Through his little anointed ones. So are you walking in the anointing of kingship. How about the priesthood? The priests were those who led others in worship. They brought others to God. So as a, as a priest, are you bringing people to God? Are you like an usher saying, let me introduce you to Jesus. Let's pray together. There's someone who can help you. Are you facilitating worship? In your private prayers, 
Are you crying out to God in the work of the priest, which is intercession, for those that God has given you in your life, especially when you have any kind of charge or authority over them? Are you crying out to God on their behalf for their life and their formation in Jesus or their salvation if they do not know the Lord? Are you doing the work of intercession quietly in the prayer closet with faith, believing that God hears persevering prayer? And in the world, in relationship, in conversation, in the rhythms of your life, are you acting as a priest? Are there friends in your life? Are there brothers and sisters in Christ who could say of you, I'm closer to God because of him. I'm closer to God because of her. If you have a family, are you leading them in worship? Are you leading them to God? Are you leading them in a life of prayer? Are you walking in the anointing of priesthood? And how about as prophets? Jesus said to the church, you're salt and light in the world, meaning you're to speak the truth of God and the word of God to contemporary life. There are a number of issues in which Bible-believing Christians are already and increasingly will be finding ourselves on the outside and at odds with many of those around us. When it comes to belief about abortion, what is right and wrong in our sexual lives and sexuality and sexual ethic, what we believe and say about gender or any of the identity issues generally, what do we say? Not to mention how we approach the very conversations about race and money and communism and socialism and democracy and parenting and work and equality and inclusiveness. How we're going to even have those conversations as Christians is different, not to mention where there may be some overlap. And, and yes, we always want to look for ways that we can say to the world, yeah, this value, we also call that good. Yet increasingly, we're going to be finding ourselves saying, not good, not good. Here is our vision of what is good. Are you walking in the anointing of a prophet speaking truth? I was recently reading a book by Rod Dreher called Live Not By Lies, in which he catalogs the stories of Eastern European dissidents who lived under communist totalitarian reign in the latter part of the 20th century. In particular, he tells the story of the Benda family who were key leaders of an, the anti-communist cell in Slovakia. They taught their children and they taught their followers not to go along to get along in a totalitarian society. They said that will not do because they understood. They said our society, this kind of society, is built on a web of lies. And every time we further a lie or say something that we deep down know is not true, were upholding the web of lies and the totalitarian regime. And so they were dedicated to speak no lies and to only speak what they knew to be true. As a prophet, are you walking in the anointing that God has upon you to speak truth? I would recommend the rest of that book and, and the rest of the Benda story as being inspiring, sobering, but inspiring. But to walk in the anointing of, of kingship, doing battle against the devil, and the anointing of priesthood 
to have the courage and the faith to go to the place of prayer and to intercede, believing that things are going to change, or, or to live as prophets in our day and age, if that doesn't seem daunting to you, and if you don't already see your shortcomings, then you're not paying attention to either your life or what I'm saying this morning. If you are intimidated and you're asking, how can we do all that? The answer is the same way that Jesus did. Because even Jesus could not and would not embark upon his earthly mission apart from the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Even Jesus would not set out on the purpose for which he'd come without receiving a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He would not do it. He knew he needed to receive that anointing. He did everything in the power of the Spirit. Notice, Jesus does everything in the power of the Spirit. And then you start to read the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit does everything in the name of Jesus. Jesus will not do his ministry apart from the power and the constant infilling of the Holy Spirit. Can you be renewed in the Spirit? Yes. Can you receive the Spirit again and again? Yes. Do you need that? Yes. Do you want it? I don't know. Do you? Do you want the infilling and the constant renewal of the Holy Spirit of God? And what would it be like if this were a church filled with people who were filled with the Spirit of God? Where it was commonplace to hear stories of redemption, of people breaking free from sinful patterns and strongholds of addiction and living new and transformed lives? What if this were a church where it was commonplace to hear testimonies of bodies being healed, of hearts being healed, broken relationships being restored, and people being set free from demonic power? And what if it wasn't just the pastors and the leaders doing this, but it was the people of God who understood their authority to pray and to heal and to declare good news in Jesus? What if it was normal for us to hear of people finding joy at coming home in God, coming out of darkness into the light, coming out of death into eternal salvation, being saved by the good news of Jesus? What if this were a church where people prayed for one another and regularly witnessed God at work in miraculous ways? And also, and not to be left out, what if we were saturated with stories of normal, everyday Christians facing rigorous trial and challenge, but walking those valley places not with despair, but with hope and endurance and a testimony of the constancy of a God who is faithful in the valley? What if all of that and more? Well, I want to tell you something. Just about everything on that list that I just listed out is already happening here at Church of the Resurrection. It's already happening. But we want to see those things happening more and more. Jesus said, if a son asks his father for bread, the father knows to give him bread. If a son asks his father for an egg, his father knows to give him an egg. Jesus says, how much more will your father who is in heaven, your heavenly Father, God your Father, how much more will he delight to give the gift he loves to give the most of all, the gift of the outpouring of his Holy Spirit when his children ask for it? Jesus said, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit? Resurrection, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
God has anointed you. Shall we walk in the power of that anointing? Shall we ask for more and more of the Holy Spirit? Shall we do that today? Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.